And when we turn to chapter 7 of Nehemiah, when we studied it several weeks ago, we came upon this realization, and it's an important realization not only as we understand the historical cultural context of the book we're studying, but also as we understand this very, very important spiritual truth that chapters 1 through 6 of Nehemiah were all about rebuilding the wall. And Nehemiah took a central role in that effort, but now that we are in chapters 7, 8, and 9, it's less about the rebuilding of a wall and more about the renewal of a people. It's less about Nehemiah, and it's more about what the Lord is clearly doing in the hearts of his people. In fact, the people are so overwhelmed in gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done, they are giving all glory and praise to God, in this chapter, Nehemiah chapter 9, you're going to see very little mention of Nehemiah, no glory given to Nehemiah. In fact, they all understood that it was God's gracious hand and his presence that enabled the wall to be rebuilt and enabled the people, the exiles, to come home, which gives us this clear reminder. Nehemiah is not about the person, Nehemiah. That there is a more central figure in the book of Nehemiah than the person the book's named after. In fact, that's the case throughout all of your Bible. First Samuel isn't first and foremost about Samuel. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the one that they point to. Your whole Bible, this library of books inspired by God, reminds us that there is one central story and there's one central figure, not only in Scripture, but in history. Not only in history, but in our story. So, many of us, we're probably used to hearing that. We're probably familiar with that kind of thinking. That in the end, yeah, the Bible's about God. But the next thing I'm about to say will probably startle us and shock us because it speaks to the ideology that all of us are saturated in on a daily basis. So hear this, and I hope that even if it does shock you or startle you, I hope that by the end of today's teaching, it's the best news you've ever heard. You ready? In the same way that Nehemiah is not about Nehemiah, it's also true that your life is not about you. This world is not about you. All of human history, not about you. Now, in a day and age where we have YouTube, iPhone, we go to a new restaurant, we want to let everybody know about this delicious salad we're having. So we take a selfie. It's jarring to hear anyone say that the whole universe isn't about me. All of our commercialism is built towards that. All of our discourse is built towards that. In fact, I would have no doubt that that's part of the enemies, and we have an enemy, spiritual decept deception against us. What we have to remember, 
and it is the best news we've ever heard, is that your life is not about you, but it's about the one who made you. That your life is not about you, but it's the one who not only made you, but gave the greatest gift to you that we could ever know. And doesn't this help to a certain degree? Doesn't it help to know that the whole universe isn't about you? Like, take that weight off your shoulders. That means when you're driving down the turnpike, you're not surprised when somebody cuts off you on the way to your commute to work because it's not about you. You're not surprised when all your kids are perfectly acting obediently and obeying every single thing you say because in the end, it's not about you. In the end, you, you even in your marriages and in our relationships, the people that we love, don't have to satisfy every single longing that you have. And this fragile, finite life that we have doesn't have to fulfill all of your wildest dreams. You could see how this is so liberating. But you know what's even better? Not only knowing that life's not about you, but knowing the one who it is about. Knowing the one who through his word liberates us to a better story, a better hero, and your true heart's home. That's to know and to love the God who made you. Up until our study here in Nehemiah chapter 9, we have seen a true revival. We've seen the hallmarks of what a spiritual revival looks like. God's people hungry for God's law. God's people want to hear from God. In fact, they ask Ezra, the priest, and the Levites, all the leaders, we want to hear from God. Just read us the law and teach us what it means. But not only do they want to hear from God, they want to be right with God. They're not just interested in what they can get from God. Their passion is to give God glory and to be right with him. So much so that it led them after they heard God's law and they were reminded of God's holiness that they started to weep over their sin. Yet it's the seventh month in the Jewish calendar. In Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 10, the Levites, the leaders reminded them, no, this is a holy day. This is a special day. Do not weep and do not mourn. Stand up and celebrate for the joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. But now we come to chapter 9. And this is after the Day of Atonement, which is the 10th day of the 7th month. This is after the Feast of Tabernacles, which is from the 15th day to the 22nd day. Now we're at the 24th day. And God's people have some unfinished business. But even as they come back to the Lord in repentance, sackcloth, and ashes, you are going to see that their heart, as they confess their sins, is so filled with the same joy that you're not going to be able to tell where the prayer stops and where the praising begins. This chapter is an entire history of God's faithfulness to God's people in the Old Testament, and they are going to proclaim and confess not only their sin, but their source of hope. Let's look at verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 9. 
Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Let's take a pause right there. What we see here in this passage is that once again the people are unified. And now the people as a sign of repentance are covering themselves in ashes and wearing sackcloth. But isn't it helpful to remember that we can have an external sign, something very superficial of our repentance, but we know that this is true spiritual revival by what verse 2 says, that God isn't just interested in us returning to him with our garments, but returning to him with our hearts. It says here in verse 2 that the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners. What this probably means is that this is a sign that they truly are convicted of the primary sin that led to their exile. Their primary sin, the number one problem in the Old Testament is worship. The problem was worship. They were not worshiping the one true God, the God that saved them, chose them, and delivered them. No, they were worshiping false gods and idols. And the bridge to do that was marrying and intermarrying with foreigners, with pagans, with non-believer idol worshipers. So when they separate themselves from the foreigners, they know full well that they are called to be a beacon of God's justice and his righteousness. But first and foremost, they also know that they need to separate themselves because when they try to be like the world around them, the world drags them down. So they separate, but I think that's not only the first sign of true repentance. Because here it is, it's one thing for them to wear sackcloth and cover their head in ashes, but we're seeing that the Spirit of God is moving, not just in their wardrobe, but in their worship. Now they're separating themselves, I believe, for this other reason. Ready? is because they are about to own their own sin. They're separating themselves because they're about to make a confession of not only their sin, but also their father's sin. And I believe it's because they know that they have to own their own mistakes. We have this temptation today, do we not? Do we not, church? We have the temptation to confess sin but not our own. You've heard me say it before. Everyone confesses sin. Hardly anyone confesses their own. We love confessing sin. We confess our neighbor's sin. We confess the sins of academia. We confess the sins of Hollywood, of Capitol Hill. We confess our wives' sins. We just don't confess our own sins. Confession is an acknowledgement. When we think confession, especially in the context of a church service or in a Christian community, we tend to think of something perhaps where you go talk to somebody. We grew up in traditions like this, right? You go to talk to somebody, you say a couple things, 
they absolve you and then you do a couple prayers and you go on your way. When we come back to scripture, what we see is that confession, first and foremost, goes directly to God. The Bible says that we should confess our sins one to another, which we'll talk about. But the Bible says that we go directly to God, right? The New Testament says there's one mediator between God and man, the person Jesus Christ. First and foremost, confess to him, but not only confess your sins as far as what you've done wrong to him. Oh, but this is so important. Confess also what he has done right. Confession is not just about us. Confession, as we'll see in Nehemiah 9, is a passion for God's glory. It is a freedom to know that, yes, we have sinned. Yes, we have fallen short of your glory. What are we also confessing? That you are worthy of all glory. That you are our hope. So as much as we confess our sin, let us also confess our Savior. This verse in the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, very, very well-known verse, it says this, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one is conf uh, confesses and is saved. How many of us have always scratched our heads when we heard that verse and said, so I have to make a confession to be saved? The Bible says we are saved through faith. This is a gift of God through grace. But as much as repentance is an act of believing, right? As much as renewal is something of experiencing, confession is also important for speaking. It doesn't save you, but it's a sign that you are saved. That you're confessing who God is and what you've had, you have done. Right. So here in this passage, they're not only confessing their sins, they're confessing the sins of their fathers. They listen to the scriptures read for six hours, and then they confess and they worship. And we get a little window into the form of worship here in verse 6. Let's look at verse 6, shall we? As you read these verses along with me, if you feel glad or feel comfortable, I want you to underline the word you in this passage. Verse 6, Nehemiah 9. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it the seas, and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Pezzarite, and the Jebusite, and the Gurkashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Notice how much of their prayer is not about me or us, but about you, God. Notice, too, how the prayer starts. The prayer begins with an understanding of God as creator 
and God as powerful. This prayer moves from God's bigness. Can we all say bigness together? It's not a word, so I just wanted to hear you say it back to me so I feel better. <laughs> Goes from his bigness to his nearness. What is helpful about coming to God as creator? We are reminded of his strength, of his majesty. But listen, we're also reminded that he made this place and we're just living in it. You get what I'm saying? That when we have grievances or we think we're a better judge than the judge, it's a healthy reminder to think, all right, next time that you speak a universe out of nothing into existence only by speaking, then maybe you can go and complain to God. They worship him as creator, the host of heaven, and reminder that the host of heaven worships him. But he's not just powerful creator, he's also personal, and he makes covenants. So that's why it moves from creation to the choosing of a people, and that's with Abram. In verse 7, God knows our names, and not only knows our names, but it also says he knows our hearts. In verse 8, it says, you found his heart, Abraham's heart, faithful before you, and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring. You see here, these people are so filled with an understanding of God's bigness and nearness that it's leading to worship even in the face of all of their challenges. I love this quote by one scholar, Derek Kidner. He said this, The city was barely habitable. Their enemies were encircling them. The poverty was very, very high. And the seeming insignificance of the Jews were all transcended by the glorious reality of their God. The best thing to do when we're fighting all kinds of different challenges and problems is to remember how big our God is. You've heard me say it before. It's tempting when we're in the midst of the storm to tell God how big the storm is. But what we should actually do is tell the storm how big our God is. Amen? What they're going to do now is they're going to tell the story of God's not only creation and choosing, but his liberation. So from verses 9 all the way down to verse 15, we have the story of the Exodus. God delivering God's people from slavery in Egypt and tyranny under Pharaoh. So not only does he give them liberty from a foe and from a fate that they could not liberate themselves from, but he continues to give. He gives them liberty all the way up until verse 12. And then he gives them his law in verse 13. In verse 14, he gives them rest from their enemies. And then in verse 15, he gives them hunger and thirst. And now here at the end, right before verse 16, he gives them land. My goodness, how many of us sometimes are not only convicted of our shortcomings and our failures when we read God's law and we're reminded of God's holiness, but how many of us are also convicted of our shortcomings when we are overwhelmed with God's goodness. One of the probably darkest places to be is to think that everything good in your life came from you. Because that's just going to lead to pride. 
It's going to lead to a hubris where we think that we're better than everybody else. No, in fact, the way you were designed, because it's true, it's reality, is that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights, in whom there is no shifting, there is no change. He's a good Father. They were given liberty, law, rest, food for their hunger, water for their thirst, and a land to build a nation. I am often overwhelmed by God's goodness to me that it reminds me of my own lack of personal goodness. Have you ever wondered why, in today's day and age, everyone in the United States of America thinks they're going to heaven? Like nobody's in hell. Like we're pretty sure it's Satan and Hitler, and that's it. It's the enemy's most effective lie, or one of his most effective lies to our generation. Part of the reason is because we don't know God's law and we don't know God's holiness. Another part is we're convinced of our own goodness. We probably wouldn't speak it out loud. We wouldn't articulate it. We wouldn't confess it vocally or verbally. But yeah, there's times where we think we could do a better job than God can. Where we think we're a better judge than God is. When we think we know more about pleasure or we know more about life. We would never say it. But there's times where we think we're just as good as God is. And that's why when we say this simple truth that God is good, I can get us really excited about that in church. I can get everyone saying yes and amen and leaving here with an assuredness of God's goodness. But when we come and we confess our sins, what we're doing simultaneously is not only saying, God, you are good and altogether good but I'm not. Romans 3 says no one is righteous. There is no one who is good. There's always somebody worse that you can compare yourself to, right? This helps us make us feel better about ourselves. We compare our sin to someone who's worse, and then we think we're a pretty good person. And that's why everyone thinks that when they cross over into the holy, holy, holy presence of God, that God's going to say, hey, yeah, good job. You did good. Come on in. Without an awareness of not just the annual, not just the monthly, not just the weekly, but the daily ways that we struggle with sins of commission, omission. God is a God who gives. God is a generous God. He's a good God. And when we really understand how much he's given, that leads us to fall on our knees and say, God, I am not good. I need you. I need your grace. And that's what they do here in verse 16. Let's read it together. Verse 16, Nehemiah chapter 9. The emphasis goes from you to they talking about their forefathers. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. Verse 17. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. This is really good news. This helps us to make sense of when we make a mistake, when we do something we regret, that it's not just circumstantial. It's emotional. It's mental. And of course, it's spiritual. We've all been there. 
when we are especially in a covenant with somebody, like our husbands or our wives, or we have a close relationship with our family, our kids, our neighbors, whatever it may be, if you wrong them, yes, go to the Lord first. But don't be surprised when this vertical relationship is connected to that horizontal one. In the sense that we can just sense it, can't we? It weighs on us. It's a burden, suffocating burden. And it seems like the only way to get freedom from it is to let it go and to speak it out. Let me tell you a story. True true story reported back in January, January 13th, by a major news network. It's a story about a young man named Frank McAllister. Frank McAllister was a 19-year-old who was tragically killed, and they found his body in a car in Costco in Northern California. Frank McAllister, who was killed, they never found his murderer. The murderer always evaded the detectives, not just for a year, not just for a decade, but for 25 years. So this sheriff's department reports the story of the person coming forward to confess of the murder of Frank McAllister 25 years later. Isn't that amazing? Even though this man was free, he was still in prison. This man's name is Brian Hawkins. I got to be really careful because we have a pastor here named Ryan Hawkins. (laughs) So true life story. I wish I could have used a different name. It's true life. Brian Hawkins, Northern California, not Colston. The story goes that it says here when he walked into the sheriff's department, Brian Hawkins said this, I'm going to turn myself in next door at the sheriff's department for a crime I was involved in years ago. It was murder. When they asked what led Hawkins to confess this crime nearly 25 years later, this is what he said, and CNN even reported it. Hawkins says it was God and his son Christ that led me to turn myself in. Quote, these things that have happened throughout my life since then for over 25 years have pushed me and pushed me to do the right thing. I know the wrong can't be changed, but this is the closest I can come to doing the right thing. Is there consequences when we confess? Absolutely. Did this man most likely go to prison for a very long time? Absolutely. But was he more free even as he was behind prison cell than he ever was when he was running not only from the law, but from running from the reality of his guilt? There was more liberty in confession than ever running from our guilt. What happens here for the rest of this chapter as we move from verse 18 all the way down to verse 25, they tell the story of the kingdom that was gained. And then verse 26 all the way to verse 31, they tell the story of the kingdom that was lost. God's people continually rebelling and God's grace continually welcoming back. And the real culmination of the chapter is here in verse 32. Let's read it together. We'll close with this. Verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great... The mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you, 
that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Verse 35, all eyes in the Bible, even in their own kingdom, amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Verse 36, last verse, behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. Next week, we're going to teach on how true confession leads to covenant. But right now, this is a perfect place to conclude our study. What we see here is that the same God who delivered them from tyranny and slavery in Egypt is the God that can deliver them even though they are slaves in their home country. How many of us, if you could put yourself in their shoes, would much rather live under the tyranny of some other reigning monarch in a foreign distant land than deal with the shame and the embarrassment and the frustration of being slaves in your own home, slaves in your own nation. You see, even as the wall has been rebuilt, even as the exiles have come home, they're still living in tyranny. They're still living in slavery. And this is why, even though Nehemiah is not at the end of the Old Testament, it's one of the last books of the Old Testament. Chronologically, this is going to be one of the last times we hear about God's people. When we come to Scripture and we see what biblical spiritual confession does to create thanksgiving, it also creates liberty. Because these people are going to beseech God to deliver them from their national slavery. Today, many of us continue to live in a different kind of slavery. Either a slavery to sin that we have not trusted Christ to liberate us from, or the slavery of unconfessed sin. It's a dark place to be. It's a desperate place to be. Jesus can forgive you of your past and give you the strength to confess him as Savior and give you the strength to make reconciliation with those that you've wronged. That is the path to a liberty and thanksgiving that only God can reveal. Amen? Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, how shocking it is to hear after all the external, outward successes of God's people in this book, Nehemiah, that in the face of poverty, in the face of adversaries, in the face of a ruling monarch from a distant land, they rebuilt the wall. They're seeing the exiles come home. The law is being read and taught and proclaimed and received. 
And yet, and yet, they cry out to God to say, we are still slaves. Would you deliver us? In the United States of America, we have a different problem. Our slavery is a slavery of will, of spirit. Where it's often our hubris and our pride that is the bigger dictator than any king of Assyria or any pharaoh. Would you allow Jesus Christ, who is able, who is willing, to lead you out of that slavery into forgiveness, into peace, and into freedom? Right now, in your heart of hearts, would you confess what the Lord's putting on your heart right now? Speak it just to the Lord. Would you confess what perhaps this passage has convicted you of and confess not only what you've done, but confess how good God is. Would you pray to him now? Would you confess that sin to him even now? In the same way, the Levites and the leaders of God's people encourage them to stand. In the spirit of prayer, church, I'm going to invite you to do the same. Let's rise together and stand. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray for a fresh pouring of your presence. That as people are faithful to you they would start to sense your joy. Church, confession isn't just what we've done wrong, but it's thanksgiving for who God is and what he's done right. So if you feel so willing and so comfortable, would you speak out what you're grateful for right now, what you're thankful for about who God is, his nature, his characteristics, and what he's done in your life. Just speak out that word in faith if you feel so led. Oh, Holy Spirit, would you work in our hearts even now? If you need words to pray, just pray this as a guide from your heart to the Lord. Father, please remind me of your love. You are holy and I am not. Please forgive me of my sin. Please fill me with your spirit and help me follow you with thanksgiving. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen. It's, it's natural, it's right to want to confess. So we're going to confess God's goodness through song.
But if you also need to talk to somebody, perhaps talk to the person who invited you. You could talk to one of the pastors, the leaders, the deacons. We have prayer counselors right after church. The Lord's putting something on your heart. It's important to share it. Don't miss this opportunity to walk in that liberty. Amen? Let's respond to God's word with worship about our good, saving, merciful God. Amen?